You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Brayman. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Marshall Glesby to talk a little bit about an exciting advancement in HIV medicine, a new clinical trial for an HIV vaccine using mRNA technology. Marshall is the Regional Clinical Director for NICA ATC, an Associate Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Director of the HIV Clinical Trials Unit at Weill Cornell Medicine. Thanks so much for being here, Marshall. Thanks, Mariana. It's great to be here. So Marshall, let's get started. Less than one year after the discovery of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the first vaccine against COVID became available through emergency use authorization. HIV was discovered in 1983, yet we still don't have an effective vaccine for it. Why is that? That's a great question. If you think about how vaccines are developed, really the basis is really uh, how the body's immune system fights off a particular infection. So for example, with COVID, if someone is infected with the virus, the body produces antibodies within a few days after infection. And the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID vaccines are really modeled after that and designed to have antibodies ready to bind to the SARS-CoV-2 virus at the time that a person is exposed or potentially infected with it. So a fundamental issue with HIV though, is that the human immune system really doesn't effectively battle the virus in in almost everybody. We've heard a lot uh, about SARS-CoV-2 variants and mutations in the spike protein, which is the target of existing vaccines uh, against COVID. And we can think of HIV as having really a spike protein on its surface, the equivalent protein or envelope protein mutates at an extraordinarily high rate, much more rapidly than the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID virus. And as a consequence, antibodies that may develop in a person against one strain of HIV will generally not bind the millions of other strains uh, that may exist out there. Another fundamental issue is we don't really understand what type or types of immune responses are needed to prevent HIV infection. People refer to this sometimes as the correlates of immune protection. So the fact that those are not well understood, even decades into the HIV pandemic, has really posed an additional challenge or barrier to the field of vaccine development for HIV. Have there been attempts at developing an HIV vaccine in the past? Why were those unsuccessful? Yeah, there have been several different approaches studied over the past 25 years or so, and uh, I'm not going to go through uh, each and every one of them, but just focus on one of them. And there's really been 
uh, just one approach so far that's initially showed, I would say, a modest amount of pro promise, and that's called the RV144 uh, trial. It was a phase three clinical trial conducted in Thailand, and they used something called a heterologous prime boost strategy. So just to break down that terminology, I think we're familiar with boost for you know COVID vaccine boosters. So that's like a, a second or third additional vaccine doses after the initial dose, which we call the prime vaccine dose. Heterologous means that the prime vaccine and the booster vaccine differ from each other. So unlike, kind of like almost like the mix and match strategies that are sometimes uh, done for COVID now, uh, where you have a different vaccine given as the booster uh, from the initial one. So this was deliberately done that way. And uh, the Initial vaccine was something uh, used a, a canary pox vector uh, and uh, called ALVAC. And by vector, we mean it's a, a way for um, uh, a technology essentially to carry the genes for the uh, viral proteins uh, within them. So we're uh, maybe familiar with this uh, for the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen COVID vaccine, which is, uses an adenovirus vector, which is a type of cold virus, to carry uh, the spike gene with it and get the body to produce it. In an analogous way, this canary pox or ALVAC vector uh, was used to carry three HIV genes into the body. And the virus itself, the canary pox virus that is similar to the adenovirus used for the COVID vaccine doesn't actually replicate in our bodies. It really just brings these genes with them and in, uh, essentially integrates them into, into cells and those cells produce the products of these genes, in this case, the HIV gene. This was followed by the booster vaccine, which was a GP120, which is the envelope protein on the outside of the HIV virus used as a, a booster. And the goal was that this prime vaccine, the, the one that was in the canary box vector, was designed to, to stimulate cellular immune responses like CD4, CD8 responses. And the booster was uh, designed to stimulate so-called neutralizing antibody responses, which are antibodies that bind to the virus, in this case, HIV, and prevent it from infecting cells. So this study enrolled over 10,000 people. And in the end, they found that it was only 31% effective at about three and a half years, which we would consider to be pretty modest efficacy. You know, as you know, the COVID vaccines have been like 90, 95% effective. This was only 31% effective. They admittedly did see a stronger signal at about 12 months, about a 60% efficacy, but this waned over time. And this was followed up uh, more recently by a modified version of this type of prime boost strategy uh, in a study in South Africa called the Uhambo trial that enrolled about 5,400 men and women. And unfortunately, it was really not found to be effective. So going back to the original Thai trial, there were subsequent laboratory studies aimed at really trying to figure out you know, why did some people have a good response to the vaccine and why were they protected against acquiring HIV? They compared people who did or didn't acquire HIV in the study and found that a certain type of antibody called an uh, IgG antibody that binds to specific parts of the outer part of HIV, the envelope, uh, specifically regions one and two of the envelope protein seemed to protect against infection but that this protection was actually reduced in those who had higher levels of a different type of antibody called an IgA antibody. So it seems that the type of immune response generated by 
vaccine or vaccines can actually uh, make a big difference in terms of the potential for protection or even the potential for harm in terms of increasing the risk of HIV infection. And that was seen in a, another HIV vaccine study, the only other one I'm gonna talk about until we get to the one that's really the focus of today's discussion. And this was called the STEP HIV vaccine trial. And they used a different type of vector, an adenovirus vector that delivered genes for three different HIV proteins to our, our own cells. And in this study of about 3,000 people, it turns out that those who had pre-existing immunity to adenoviruses, which can cause the common cold, actually had higher rates of acquiring HIV if they received this candidate vaccine compared to placebo. So in other words, immunizing people with this investigational vaccine led to higher rates of HIV acquisition if they had pre-existing immunity to the adenovirus vector. So that's really, I think, a cautionary tale about uh, these vaccines and the importance of, of studying them very carefully. So let's talk about this new clinical trial. Where is it being conducted? You know, how many patients are involved? What is their demographic and age group? Yeah, so this uh, new vaccine, uh, investigational vaccine, has really garnered a lot of media attention. I think it's presumably because it uses this Moderna mRNA, messenger RNA vaccine platform that's been so successful uh, against uh, COVID. And as we'll get to in a moment, really the entire approach is quite novel. So it's not just this Moderna uh, platform, it's, it's the whole approach to uh, potentially immunizing people against HIV. So this study is a phase one trial. It's really the earliest stage, earliest phase of any type of clinical trial. Uh, it enrolls a small number of people and it's really the, again, the first step. And it's enrolling at George Washington University School of Medicine, Emory University, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the University of Texas Health Science Center uh, at San Antonio. And it's sponsored by IAVI or the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. It's a first in human trial of this particular uh, strategy. So it's focusing on safety and immunogenicity, meaning you know, does the body develop an immune response to uh, the antigens that are uh, part of the vaccine? And it uh, aims to enroll 56 men and women ages 18 to 50, all people who are healthy, who don't have HIV, and people who are not engaging in behaviors that might put them at risk of acquiring HIV within the prior six months. Like any clinical trial, they need to demonstrate an understanding of the study and provide written informed consent. And it's an open label study, meaning there's no blinding or masking. Everyone will know what they're getting. Can you talk a little bit about what is so novel about the approach being tested here? Sure, let's start with a brief discussion of broadly neutralizing antibodies, just so that we're on the same page. I mentioned this uh, already, but uh, just to reiterate, it's a type of antibody that really binds to the virus and prevents it from infecting the human cells. So people with HIV typically produce antibodies against their own viral strains, but they are usually targeting parts of the virus that are highly variable, meaning there's lots of mutations that occur uh, in those areas and that prevents them from uh, really recognizing other strains of virus that may arise within the same person or in different people. A small proportion of people uh, with HIV, less than 20% are the estimates, naturally produce what are called broadly neutralizing antibodies, or we call them BNABs. And these BNABs recognize many different strains of HIV, unlike the usual antibodies that I just mentioned that most people will produce 
who are living with HIV. So these have characteristics that enable them to bind to regions of the virus that are hidden from the immune system typically, or that we call conserved parts of the virus that are not subject to a lot of mutations and vary uh, much less between viral subtypes so within a person or, or between people. And the beauty is that these types of BNABs can be reproduced in the lab. And they've been studied both for HIV treatment and prevention. So I wanted to mention uh, a pair of trials that looked at these BNABs for prevention called the AMP studies, AMP standing for antibody-mediated prevention. These were published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021, so last year. And they enrolled about 4,600 people. Uh, they were cisgender men and transgender persons in four continents throughout the world. And they gave uh, intravenous doses of something called VRC01, which is a broadly neutralizing antibody that targets part of the HIV envelope the outer part of HIV that binds to the main receptor for the virus called the CD4 receptor on the target CD4 T cells. And they gave uh, one of two doses uh, every eight weeks or placebo. And overall, the, uh, this VRCO1 broadly neutralizing antibody unfortunately didn't prevent against acquisition of HIV compared to placebo. But in a pre-specified sub-analysis or subgroup analysis where they focused on HIV strains that were acquired that were sensitive to these, this antibody, which only represented about 30% of the strains. They found that it was actually the antibody, the BNAB was highly protective, about 75% effective. So this is important proof of concept that if you have virus to which the, you know, is, that is sensitive to the BNAB, they can actually confer quite high levels of protection against infection. Now, unfortunately, only a minority of the strains that people were infected with uh, in the study actually were sensitive, as I said, about 30% of them. But again, shows that perhaps this approach in a modified way could uh, actually be uh, more highly effective. Okay, so the AMP studies that you just described administered a broadly neutralizing antibody or BNAV made in the lab to people. How does this tie in with vaccines? Well, in terms of HIV vaccines, historically, there was actually an initial focus on trying to generate these types of neutralizing antibodies. And unfortunately, these early approaches were really not successful. So researchers began to switch the approach to other uh, types of immune responses like cell-mediated immunity as opposed to antibodies. It's sort of a different arm of the immune system. In more recent years, the pendulum has actually swung back to trying to generate these neutralizing antibodies that bind the parts of HIV that again are conserved and don't, don't change much with the goal of blocking the virus from infecting cells and really creating hopefully durable protection. So as we discussed these, BNABs can block uh, lots of different HIV variants or strains. So how are these actually made by our immune systems you know, in the minority of people with HIV who produce them? It turns out that the B cells, which are the type of immune cells that, are, uh, that make antibodies, the ones that are destined to produce these BNABs are actually quite rare. And once they're stimulated, they need to expand and mature down a particular pathway in order to produce these BNABs. So if we uh, try to induce this type of immune response with a vaccine, the process itself may actually require more than one vaccine. So it's led to this concept of sequential vaccination or a way of training the immune system to produce BNABs. So the first step 
is really priming the immune system by giving a vaccine that's targeting the right type of B cells, in particular what we call naive B cells, which are B cells that haven't encountered the antigen that they recognize. So B cells have, are kind of aimed at um, making antibodies or they, uh, against certain antigens, uh, things that stimulate the immune system. And these ones are, are particular types of cells that haven't actually met those antigens uh, in real life yet. And they have the potential to develop into cells that produce BNABs and produce in particular memory B cells that can be boosted by other vaccines and ultimately go down the path of developing into what are called plasma cells that are little factories that secrete BNABs. So the idea is to give a sequence of vaccines, you know, each of which maybe differs in a certain way, and that this last round of, uh, of vaccination will generate uh, these plasma cells or factories that will secrete the BNAMs. And has this sequential vaccination approach for HIV been tested in people? Well, researchers are really just starting to investigate this. So in the first step, scientists from the Scripps Research Institute, NAAVI, have like previously presented some of these data on a phase one trial of a, called AAVI G001. And this was at a conference about a year ago now, in February of uh, 2021. And in this study, they looked at 43 HIV negative adults and gave them two doses of a vaccine candidate or placebo two months apart. The vaccine candidate, uh, the name of it is really a mouthful. It's called EOD GT860 MER. And uh, I'm not gonna probably say that again today, uh, the technical details are really not important. I think that's more of a concept, but if anyone is interested who's listening, it's a self-assembling nanoparticle of engineered HIV envelope proteins that are linked to a sphere. So it's essentially a way of delivering the HIV proteins to the immune system. And in this preliminary study, this uh, vaccine candidate was safe and 97% of the people, of these 48 people, produced the desired immune response Namely, priming of the targeted B cells that we're you know, aiming that they're aiming at um, uh, targeting uh, to get them to produce BNABs eventually once they mature down the right pathway. And these B cells are present in about one in a million B cells, so they're really a rare target. And they successfully targeted them with this candidate vaccine. So this strategy is also called germline targeting because the young B cells that are being targeted specifically that hopefully will develop down the road into uh, plasma cells that make these BNABs actually um, have antibodies on their surface that are coded for by what we call germline genes, the genes that are in our, our eggs and sperm that have not yet mutated. So normally during the, um, uh, over time, our immune systems have these types of genes that mutate naturally. And that's how we have this uh, our immune systems develop diverse uh, ability to uh, target all sorts of different antigens. It's through this, uh, these random mutations that occur over time. So these were unmutated ones or germline genes being targeted. So just to, you know, this is a lot of information and maybe hard to, to wrap our heads around, but just to reiterate the strategy of sequential vaccines that are guiding B cells along the path to produce these broadly neutralizing antibodies or in essence, training the B cells to make BNABs that can neutralize a large portion of viral strains uh, is, is being studied here. And the next step, 
uh, of these, you know, that these investigators have taken is partnering with Moderna to develop and test mRNA-based vaccine to accomplish the same aims that we just talked about. So it's really using a different technology to accomplish this. So what do we know about this experimental HIV vaccine? You know, how does it incorporate Moderna's mRNA technology and how would it theoretically work to protect folks from contracting HIV? Yeah, so this new trial is going to administer this 60 mer vaccine that I mentioned a little while ago that was previously studied and, and seemed to be quite successful, at least in that first step of hopefully leading to the development of, of cells that make these BNABs. And it's going to study it with or without a different booster vaccine or the booster vaccine alone. And again, the, the aim is to really further train the immune system to ultimately make BNABs. So how does the Moderna mRNA platform come into this? It's really just a way for scientists to customize the antigens that will stimulate the immune system. And the beauty of this platform, as we saw with the development of the COVID vaccines, is that it can really uh, be developed in a way to, to make antigens very quickly and or the mRNA that codes for antigens. And that uh, we know from the COVID experience, uh, safely administer these vaccines to people. How will we know if the trial is successful? And if so, what happens after? You know, what would need to happen for providers to be able to begin offering this vaccine to people? Well, the primary focus of a small phase one study like this is really safety. And the investigators presumably have a predetermined threshold for what they would consider safe to be. And there are key secondary outcomes, so things that are also being looked at that are really focusing on the development of specific types of. B cells and antibodies. So remember, Mariana, this is a small early phase study of people who are not considered to be at high risk of acquiring HIV. So it's really not aimed at looking at whether the vaccine protects against HIV acquisition, but really setting the stage for those types of studies that will hopefully be done down the road, which would eventually be large phase three efficacy and safety trials aimed at really preventing acquisition of HIV in people at higher risk. So if this approach ends up getting to phase three trials and is successful, demonstrating both safety and efficacy, then these data would be submitted presumably to the FDA and if approved, could then be offered to people. And our hope would be that uh, these would become available in resource limiting settings where there's really a tremendous need for uh, preventative vaccines. This has been so informative and certainly a lot to go over. What are some of the top you know, takeaways for providers as we begin to wrap up? How can they make sure to stay up to date on this trial? I would say that uh, one take home message is that this mRNA vaccine technology developed by Moderna that gave us the two uh, FDA approved vaccines, you know, one made by Moderna, one made by Pfizer uh, using their own uh, similar type of technology for COVID-19 is now being used to develop a novel type of HIV vaccine. And the advantage again of this platform is that it's well-suited for generating different vaccines in a relatively short period of time. The strategy that's being used is to train the immune system to hopefully produce broadly neutralizing antibodies to HIV that can confer protection against the wide range of HIV strains that are out there. And while this new study that we talked about is an early phase trial, if it's safe and successful at generating the desired immune responses, it will undoubtedly move forward into larger trials that we hope one day will culminate in an FDA-approved HIV vaccine that can be employed worldwide. 
I'm sure the results of the trial will be presented at a major scientific conference once they're available and ultimately published. And positive results will undoubtedly make their way into everyone's inboxes via the usual ways we seem to get information these days, be it from mainstream media or medically oriented media, and perhaps will be the focus of a future Nika in the Know podcast. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us today and breaking down this potentially game-changing vaccine trial for us. I personally can't wait to hear about the results and you know, I'll be following it closely. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.